So you need to leave room for the audience's imagination. But at the same time, with an issue like climate change, you, you obviously have a responsibility to the truth. And you've got to find a way of dramatising the truth. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter, and this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is Steve Waters, a renowned playwright whose duo of plays, Resilience and On the Beach, which are together known as the Contingency Plan, are amongst the most celebrated plays tackling the subject of climate change. Upon its showing at the world-famous Bush Theatre in London in 2009, the Contingency Plan was labelled as an urgent wake-up call by The Guardian, a stunning theatrical knockout by The Daily Telegraph, and the first and best British play on climate change by Time Out magazine. Steve Waters is often described as one of the UK's most accomplished political playwrights. Some of his other plays include A Vulnerable Place in 2014, Temple in 2015, and Limehouse in 2017. His works also span radio and TV, including the award-winning audio series Fall of the Shah, as well as Miriam and Yusuf, which were both aired on the BBC World Service. Steve also ran the MPhil in playwriting at Birmingham University between 2006 and 2011, and is now Professor of Script Writing at the University of East Anglia, where he convenes the MA in Creative Writing. And by the way, if you'd like to hear or read some of Steve's work, we have a few links in the show description that you might like to check out. And so without further ado, here's our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start with how you got interested in theatre. I read that you studied English at Oxford University, and it was at this this period that you wrote your first play or became interested in theatre. Is this true? And how did it begin? Yeah, I mean, it's so long ago, it almost feels like ancient history. But yeah, when I was a, a student of English, as you say, I came from a place in the Midlands called Rugby, Coventry area. There was very little theatre. To be honest, there was no theatre. And then when I went to university, uh, in the very first term, there was a kind of drama competition. And I wrote something for it, almost as a way of making friends. And yeah, it went well. And that opened my eyes a little bit to theatre. But actually, the journey was much more indirect. I mean, it really was... Um, after I left university in the late 80s, I became a school teacher in Oxfordshire. I taught in various comprehensive schools in Oxfordshire. And there I started sort of creating theatre, writing pieces for my students. And there was something about that feeling of necessity about it because they, they, you know, I had a lot of girls in my groups, you know, so they didn't really have very good parts to play. So I'd write something for, you know, to give them that opportunity. And and then I went in 92, I went to Birmingham University where there was a very new course, an MA in playwriting studies set up by a very important writer called David Edgar, uh, who was a great mentor to me and, and frankly opened my eyes to theatre, to playwriting. And slowly but surely, uh, that became the person that I am, as it were. Eventually, I taught on that course many years later and um, um, set me on this course, which has led me to to doing the sort of stuff I'm doing now. So yeah, it's been a long journey. I didn't really have my first show until the late 90s. But uh, since then, um, that has been, you know, how I would describe myself would be as a playwright, even though I've worked in higher education for, for a lot of that time too. 
And I, I read a bit about this playwriting course that you did at, at Birmingham University. I found it really intriguing just reading a little bit about it in, I think, one of the interviews that you've, you've done previously. And I wanted to ask, what did you learn at that course? Because it sounded like it completely changed the way you viewed and approached theatre. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a life changing experience, and one of the feelings I have in any of my teachings, I, I you know, I always seek to, you know, make sure that I'm providing something. I hope that is comparable to that, because I mean, I'm not to say everything was, you know, perfect, but there was something about the configuration of this really new course, you know, that that, that kind of David was a working writer, really important British writer, still is, by the way, still very much with us. Um, very much associated with the Royal Shakespeare Company and political theatre. So David was known for being a left-wing writer. In fact, I first met him in the pages of Marxism Today, uh, which I was a great reader of at the time. And um, he went back to a university he had links with, Birmingham University set up this course. And it was very much a sort of a sort of course where you you kind of met other writers, not only your fellow students, but every week, and I'm sorry to say it's not quite so easy to do this now, but he would bring into the room, I don't know, Arnold Wesker or Trevor Griffiths, somebody I was a great admirer of. Um, you know, they're almost like a generation of uh, great writers. Uh, and Britain has an incredible tradition of playwriting, particularly in the post-war years. So it felt an incredible privilege to be catapulted into that community. But at the same time, my peer writers were extraordinary as well, one of whom particularly was Sarah Kane, who, who went on to be one of the most important playwrights of the 1990s and her, her you know very sadly took her life at the end of that decade but her work has traveled around the world so I think the interface between this great tradition of writers from the past and and these really exciting peers really turned my mind on to what theatre writing was about it was so different from contemporary literature for instance it was so much more provocative and combative and and also just took me into a world of theatre as I was saying I, I had very very limited experience of what theatre was before this course I came away with a incredibly profound sense of its importance so yeah it was a, it was a game changer that year. It sounds like an amazing course to have been on. Um, yeah, even just yeah. yeah, hearing you talk about it now, it sounds it sounds great. And and now you're you're known as one of the most accomplished political playwrights in the UK. And I was wondering if have your plays always been politically minded? I think so. I know I'm. So, it's sort of as you'll discover talking to me. I'm not the sort of person that I hope is particularly dogmatic or. You know, when you think of the phrase political playwright, you'd imagine somebody who really knows their own mind and, you know, is right on every issue. And uh, I, I definitely am not that person. But I, you know, I could only, I think it would be disingenuous of me to say my work is not political in the sense that I suppose it, it stems from the fact that I feel that theatre is a public medium. It's also, in, in most cases, most of us work in the publicly funded subsidised theatres. That's where a lot of new work actually takes place. You know, it's very rare that a writer begins in the West End, for instance, in the commercial sector. So there's always been this um, feeling, I guess, from from the very out onset of that theatre, let's say in the 1950s, that it was answerable to its own society. And another reason I think why playwriting had such an intense culture in the UK was because of that perception from the foundation of the Royal Court and even going further back. So, you know, I, I suppose, therefore, becoming that kind of writer wasn't a choice in some respects. Why do I get called political in a way that maybe some of my peers don't necessarily? I think, I suppose that's because it wasn't always the case. I don't think my early work was quite like this. Uh, first two plays I wrote at the Hampstead Theatre 
which I'm which is sort of not quite landed as works, but were very important for me, were more open ended. And I think the late nineties was a curiously apolitical time, actually, despite you know New Labour and all that kind of stuff. Perhaps because of New Labour, I don't know. Uh, you know, there was a feeling that maybe theatre was all about flat shares and taking drugs and sort of relationships and sexuality. I mean, sexuality, of course, can be political, but the kind of horizons of theatre were actually quite intimate. And I felt I wanted to, you know, reach back for that tradition I was already mentioning, whether it was Edgar or David Hare or Carol Churchill, one of the most important writers for me, really, of modern times, um, who had a stronger sense of history and a stronger sense that theatre was public and private simultaneously. And after all, that's true of our great ancestors, Shakespeare, the Greek tragedy and so on. So to the extent that I felt that what I was writing should answer to that tradition and, you know, that theatre is not just about my life and my feelings, uh, that it is an argument, it is a debate, as well as an exploration of psychology and exploration of emotion. So I suppose all of those perceptions and feelings have led me to become described as a political playwright. But I think most people find when they look at my work, it's much more nuance than that suggests. I hope that's true anyway. Uh, there's more debate with myself in the work than me merely kind of telling people what to think, which I would, would hate to feel that was the kind of tenor of my writing. And so what, what sparked your interest and empathy with environmental issues? When did you decide to begin writing plays um, with an environmental theme? That's a really, really interesting question. It's quite a difficult one to answer, actually, because, I mean, firstly, it responds to the previous question in the sense that, you know, clearly there's lots of ways to think about the environment. And one of those ways might be described as politically inflected. Um, but one of the things that appeals to me about, in the broadest of senses, ecological politics is that it's so inclusive and it's so comprehensive because, after all, it's about the human world, the natural world and the relationships between the, between those um, areas of life so it seems so much bigger than politics to me and, and the rather sterile nature of human politics sometimes so anyway just a sort of general point um, I think I was very alert to it even in you know in the 90s I was quite aware of you know the Rio conference um, uh, the kind of green movement at that time I was quite drawn to sort of certain if you like green anarchist kind of thinking in the 90s and that notion of locality and place and thinking global and acting local and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, in the broadest of senses, I've been quite alert to um, thinking about the natural world and it's if it's like its role in the human world and the way we're, you know, trashing it, to be honest, systematically. So I guess that's been quite fundamental for me as a writer. And one of the things that's intrigued me is I'm not sure it's always that central to theatre. Uh, I've often sort of pondered that theatre is quite a human medium, quite a metropolitan medium. So it's sometimes been a little bit lacking in alertness to some of these questions. I won't say that, I mean, maybe I'm talking particularly about British theatre, actually, and maybe even more particularly English theatre. Uh, you know, you wouldn't say that about um, Russian theatre, for instance, which actually was incredibly, and to Chekhov and others, very alert to, you know, placing human stories in a natural context. So in brief answer to your question was actually, I mean, even my first play, English Journeys, which was about uh, people driving across East Anglia, actually. Um, it was on at the, the Hampstead Theatre in the late, 80, uh, late 90s, 1998. And actually, even there, I was trying to sort of get at this feeling of people um, adrift in their own landscape. Uh, I was actually writing a little bit about our relationship with Europe and the European Union at that time. And, you know, lots of things which, of course, have become profoundly 
controversial over the last 10 years. But I think that sense of place was running through it. And I think the first project I would definitely say was, well, that was me writing into ecological theatre. It was a show I created in 2004. I actually produced this show because I got some money from the Arts Council. Because I actually, one of the reasons I did that was I knew that I wouldn't get this on (laughs) in mainstream theatre, partially for some of the reasons I've mentioned, I think. Um, And this was a show where I explored the legacy of John Clare, the poet, uh, the so-called, you know, peasant poet who was from North Cambridgeshire, what was then Northamptonshire, in, in a place called Helpston. And I live just north of Cambridge. So I've always been, although I come from the Midlands, I've got very interested in the strangeness of these of East Anglian landscapes and Fenland and so on. And to cut a long story short, I wanted to create a piece where, where I walked a walk that John Clare had taken in Oh gosh, when was it? It was probably in the 1830s. Maybe it was in the 1840s. Actually, while since I wrote it, uh, where he fled an asylum in High in in High Beach in Epping Forest and walked home in four days to his home just north of Peterborough. He was living in Northborough at that time, and it's just one of the most extraordinary stories. Really, he he wrote this prose account of this journey, and uh, it's like this shocking, powerful idea of a man walking through a landscape that doesn't that's hostile to him that he doesn't know about eating grass, um, you know, turning up in places like Potton in Bedfordshire and being turned away, being, you know, it's such a powerful story. And so I wanted to walk the walk with an actor and use it as a way of thinking about the contemporary landscape, because that route is effectively the route of the A1. Now, it's the, he, he followed the Great North Road out of London. So, you, you know, there I was walking through Enfield and, you know, things actually, by the way, that writers like Ian Sinclair were doing almost exactly at the same time. And with my fellow uh, sort of walker, Patrick Morris, who's an actor, we then built a show out of it called Claire's Walk, which toured the route. And, you know, en route, we met people with, who were running nature reserves or we just met people wandering around. We We talked to farmers. So it was actually a very you know, strong induction into trying to sort of tell the story of the land in theatrical terms. You know, I had to learn much more precisely how to identify birds and plants and flowers and so on. So Claire's model and his example just alerted me to what I didn't know, actually. And, you know, I feel like there is a sleeping story in the English landscape of enclosure, which was another thing that Claire wrote so powerfully about in his poetry. Um, It's a privatisation of land. And we were at the end of a 200-year process of that. Well, actually, more like 500 years if you really take it back to its origins. Um, So this very hedged about, man-made, trashed landscape was what I was kind of interested in tracking. And the fact that it was still full of life. So that was, you know, in many respects, it's not a piece that's well known because it was performed in village halls, nature reserves and so on. But that was part of the point of it, to, to take the story back to some of the people I'd met and some of the communities I'd engaged with. And then it was taken on by a theatre company who were based in Cambridge called Menagerie, who toured it uh, for the next few years, actually. It sort of lasted from 2006 to 2008 as a show. Um, so I think that was, I mean, I would date that as my um, really the first serious engagement with environmental questions in my work. Um, and there was no turning back after that, really. It's interesting you mentioned this work because it was a work that I don't know anything about because I read about the the contingency plan and yeah. I thought that I assumed that was your first environmentally focused work so was there were there any other plays that you wrote between 2004 with your first play on the environmental theme and the contingency plan that I might not know about 
I don't think so. I think more into, I mean, you know, those questions were were at work in mysterious and definitely present ways in pretty much everything that I wrote. You know, I wrote this play called World Music, which was very much on the surface, had nothing to do with any of these questions as it was about genocide in Africa and Europe and Africa's relationships with each other. But again, it's still about land. You know, it's still about these questions of earth and land and growth. Uh, the Unthinkable was a play wrote about think tanks, but actually behind it, there was a kind of environmental politics. But yeah, there's no doubt that the contingency plan... Oh, I was going to say Fast Labour, which was a play about migrant workers, you know, from, from former Soviet states coming over to England in the sort of early noughties. Uh, most of that was set in East Anglia. So it's looking at the politics of agriculture, I suppose, and land use. But for the audience, they saw it as a play about migration, primarily, which was the hot button topic of the day, really. But you're right that the contingency plan is the first thing I ever wrote, which was directly about climate change, uh, as opposed to environmental change. And, you know, I think it's really interesting to sort of work out why, you know, I wasn't alone I mean, I was one of, that was one of the first plays that sort of did that in a very overt fashion. But there was funny, there was a sort of real impetus of work around that point, sort of 2008, 2009, which I think stems from things like The Uninconvenient Truth by Al Gore, the, the sort of uh, Davis Guggenheimer film that was released in 2006, Katrina floods in New Orleans. Um, you know, there were a number of sort of inflection points around there. And for me, one of the crucial Things actually reading a book. It was James Lovelock's uh, The Revenge of Gaia. Okay. My mum actually showed me that book yesterday. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, it's a very, it's a very, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what you think of it because it's an extremely complicated book. Uh, and he's a very complicated figure. And, and his character and his reputation and his story, in some respects, does inform the contingency plan because there's a lot of things in that book I found myself quite resistant to. But, the, but, you know, there's no doubt that James Lovelock and um, Lynn Margulis and various other, um, well, he's an atmospheric chemist, I think, by training and an engineer. But they certainly coined this notion of the Gaia. Actually, they took the term, I think, from William Golden, the novelist, um, because they were trying to sort of talk, talk about the way that life functioned on planet Earth in systems, in a systems mode. And, you know, I think what's still quite controversial is the idea that there is this sort of built-in tendency towards the Earth as a system trying to create conditions which are conducive to life in a way that other planets obviously don't have that necessarily. And this notion of Goldilocks Earth, you know, just the right temperature, not too hot, not too cold. And all those ideas, which he sort of framed and developed in the 80s and 90s, which were kind of much even earlier, I think in the 70s, were were frowned upon or considered to be counter to certain Darwinian views, I think, of how science was proceeding. And he was very much out in the cold with them. Um, and only really latterly were they beginning to sort of be accepted as uh, conventional wisdom within science as climatology became more and more pr- prominent as a, as a sort of um, a science. I mean, in a way, climate change has become the dominant and most kind of crowded field in scientific studies. But obviously, it wasn't always stuck or wasn't always thus. So I was very interested in that story. But also what was interesting about the book was it was a kind of strange mixture of relish for disaster and I would always say there was something a bit I would say misanthropic about it almost like uh, a feeling that humans had had this coming and he was kind of like a scientist perhaps just very excited to see what ways in which ideas which he'd been carrying or thinking about for years might play out 
And that struck me as rather sort of provocative. And also there was a sense in the book of he was very resistant to a lot of conventional green groups or green ideas or renewable energy and so on. So it was very pessimistic as a book. Uh, and some of the uh, projections as to what human life would be like by the end of this century were dystopian beyond belief. So it wasn't exactly encouraging. And bearing in mind, you know, he was already, I think, in his late 80s, possibly even, you know, I think he's in his 90s now. So the book was the reflections of a very old man who'd sort of lived through these things, but it wasn't necessarily there to deal with the consequences. But anyway, it was a wake-up call. Um, and I got quite involved with community politics around climate change. I live, as I say, in just north of Cambridge in a place called Impington. And the place is packed with scientists, actually. You know, a lot of people who work for British Antarctic Science and work in the science parks. And so we created a kind of carbon reduction type group in the community, um, which, you know, wasn't popular with a lot of people, uh, but, you know, it was mainly a lot of events and activities and consciousness raising things. And it was around that time I started writing the contingency plan. And so once you had the, the idea for the contingency plan, how did you go about refining the narrative and the story? Did you have a specific process for this or and did the process differ from plays you might have written in the, the past? Yeah, yeah, no, it did. I think that, you know, of course, as you'll understand, um, the theatre is a very contingent place. I mean, in a sense, you're always responding to artistic directors and buildings and so on. So I had this relationship ongoing relationship with a director called Josie Rourke, who I'd met up at Sheffield, where she did a couple of my plays up there. And she became the artistic director of the Bush Theatre, which is in West London, Shepherd's Bush, hence the title. Uh, it's now uh, on the Exbridge Road, but at that point it was on Shepherd's Bush Green. And it was a tiny, tiny space that had been going for, I don't know, 30 years by that point, 40 years even, and was just above a pub. You know, so kind of heartbreaking, really, to think about theatre. Now we're not really making any. Um, and especially a theatre like this was so intimate, you know, because you'd have about 60 people in there, you know, sitting literally on top of each other in this shared space. But despite its size, it was like one of the most important theatres in the world in some respects. I mean, with the Royal Court and, you know, it was turning out incredible new work beginnings of you know actors like Alan Rickman or artists like Mike Lee all sorts of people started out at the bush so it was an honour to be connected to that place but it's small so there I was thinking about writing this play about this extraordinarily complicated and elusive question of how do you sort of tell a story about climate change um, I often quote the slightly you know familiar idea which comes from the ecologist Timothy Morton he talks about climate change being a hyper object almost the sense that it's something that you can't quite understand because it works at so many scales. Um, it's everywhere and it's it's nowhere. It's in particular places and it's global. So it, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's quite hard for the limited human mind to grasp it. And I felt that I think there'd been one or two attempts to sort of create theatre out of this, but they tended to sort of be quite abstract in their focus. And the bush doesn't really work in that way. It's very much a sort of space because of its intimacy that depends upon detail, a certain version of realism that's so heightened that it's almost like hyper-realism, if you like, because you're so close to the actors. Uh, Mike Brabble, who used to run the theatre, said it, it was impossible to lie in the bush theatre. And I love that idea. You know, you're, you're, as, you're sort of as close to somebody as you would be, you know, in their living room. But I had this sense of a story that 
you know, was set in two places in, on the North Norfolk coast, again, the East Anglian setting, partially, personally, partially because I find that a very appealing part of the world. And also I know it's a very endangered part of the British landscape because that coast is, you know, exposed to the full force of the North Sea, coastal drift, longshore drift, all sorts of things are going on up there anyway. Climate change has accelerated some of those pressures. On the other hand, it's, you know, this fabulous um, national nature reserve that runs, you know, in this huge strip from Kings Lynn right across to, right round to places like Cromer. And then I wanted a place set right in the heart of government. I imagined when I was first thinking about the play that you would cut between the two places almost continuously. But you weren't going to get away with that in this tiny pub theatre. It would have looked ridiculous. But that led to a fantastic thing, really, because Josie, um, the artistic director, encouraged me to write two plays, um, a kind of diptych, if you like. And if you know the contingency plan, that's what resulted. So there's two plays. One's called On the Beach, and um title I took from both Neil Young, <laughs> it's a great album from 1973, but also Neville Shute's kind of uh, apocalyptic novel from the 50s. And that's the one set in North Norfolk. So it's kind of a family drama set in this this home of a, a couple called Robin and Jenny. Robin is a sort of response to the James Lovelock kind of character, I suppose. He's an aging glaciologist who sort of, his career collapsed in the 70s for, for, for inexplicable reasons, really. And his son, Will, um, has if you like, stepped up to the plate and become a glaciologist himself based in Antarctic, um, and in a way carrying on the work his father didn't um, continue with. So On the Beach is about the return of the son, Will, with his partner, Sarika, who's a civil servant, unbeknownst to Robin, as it turns out. And it leads to this very combustible confrontation as it as they both try and get... get what happened to uh, Robin back in the 70s and the fact that he discovered melting in the Antarctic way before anybody thought it could possibly occur and didn't really understand its causes because at that point climate change wasn't really operative as a way of understanding geophysical processes in the world. Um, so it becomes this kind of confrontation between father and son. So, that, so On the Beach is kind of quite a realistic, tragic outdoor play in the midst of this incredible landscape. And the other play, Resilience, was set in the heart of government. So it's set in Whitehall during a kind of COBRA meeting, sort of meeting that Boris Johnson doesn't turn up to these days, uh, you know, emergency response meetings in the middle of a national crisis because there's been this enormous maritime flood in the West Country. And then we see it's actually the next day from the first sort of act of On the Beach. And we see Will appear um, at the behest of Sirico in the middle of this closed meeting to try and usurp uh, the current government advisor, a man called Colin Jenks, who was his father's nemesis. Anyway, complicated plot, Toby. Uh, if we've got more time, I'll tell you the full details. <laughs> but what's quite interesting, what, the, what was exciting about having the scope and the palette for two plays was that they could be very different in approach. So, you know, as I've mentioned, on the beach is quite set in the natural world. It's quite it's a very realistic family tragedy, really. Whereas Resilience is a political farce. You know, it's set in Whitehall. There's this kind of hilarious, hapless minister called Chris, who's like a blowhard coming from sort of, you know, the private sector, who finds himself in the middle of this ministry, which was then the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Now it would be business, uh, enterprise and industrial strategy. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to handle this, this kind of, disaster that's landed on his lap so will becomes his go-to advisor 
I mean, you know, the ironies of it are so extraordinary, Toby, because it was going to be revived last year at the Donmar Warehouse. And I rewrote the whole play to try and address 10 years of change in politics and climate change and, you know, climate emergency, frankly. And then, of course, <laughs> COVID, COVID prevented yeah. it. From being <laughs> um, and, you know, who knows, it may well be on, let's hope, next year. And, I'm, you know, it feels like this question of government, government advisors and, you know, emergency meetings and pandemics, just the play will speak to that reality just as it did to pre-pandemic realities. Let's hope it's on. I would love to, I would love to see it. Yeah, I hope we can. I hope we can. And certainly, you know, I mean, it's so ironic because we were literally going to go into rehearsal on the day of the lockdown. And we actually did, we did do some rehearsal on Zoom just to almost honour the fact that all those actors were hired and we had the directors and stuff. So it's kind of gutting. I don't think the play is going to go out of date, if you see what I mean. In fact, if some, in many many of its themes, because really it's about politics and science and responsibility and, and how these questions are at the limits of politics, if you like. I still think that's true. I mean, obviously, you know, this government is attempting to sort of, um, you know, step up to the plate, you know, certainly rhetorically. And, you know, obviously we've got the responsibility of holding the net cop event uh, in the autumn. And we don't want to look like a, you know, like we have no idea what we're doing. So there's this, you know, but it can only really address the climate emergency for techno fixes. And I find that fascinating how real deep transformation is still so foreign to politics of growth, really, which is, you know, all that particularly neoliberal regimes have to offer is, you know, how do we get out of the pandemic, spend, 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 build, 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 develop, develop, develop. And, you know, how they, how they, reconcile that with zero carbon is going to be fascinating i was wondering what were your resources for creating these duo of plays how did you get the scientific knowledge to write a play around these topics and themes did you have to do a lot of research before you began writing the play to write about these central characters who are glaciologists and the other characters within the play yeah i did and i mean as i I mentioned there were certain very convenient things there um not least having neighbours who work for British Antarctic Survey and, you know, could take me in and show me on his cores and, you know, wonderful encounters like that. There were, you know, also I worked quite closely with the RSPB. I went up to their reserve in Titchwell, which at that point had just breached its outer sea defence wall uh, to deal with uh, rising sea levels and, you know, to deal with increasing coastal turbulence. So there are there a number of real life prototypes of some of the things I was exploring in the play. I met with people in the Department of Energy and Climate Change. I was also very much assisted by a lot of endeavours that were going on at the time. There was an organisation called Tipping Point. Sadly, I don't think exists anymore, uh, but I hope I'm wrong in that. But they used to convene events where they brought scientists and artists together, uh, particularly climate scientists. So I attended one of their events in Oxford in 2008 and I actually became quite close to the organisation uh, because I think that was really important, this kind of just dealing with the fear. You know, I'm a person that came out of school with pathetic results in science. You know, I mean, I had to retake my biology, you know, just about scrape through the physics. And I had a sort of mental block on science for most of my adult life. So, you know, I think that writing the contingency plan was a great way of sort of confronting that, actually, and saying it's not good enough for people in the arts and humanities to sort of say, well, let's leave all that to the scientists. The scientists were crying out for assistance, really, from people with communicative skills and gifts and storytellers and so on. doesn't mean that we're here to merely do their business. Um, but on the other hand, the conversations we can have are incredibly fruitful. 
So there was a lot of that going on behind it. And of course, rewriting it required all that to happen all over again. Uh, because, you know, the world has changed and sadly for the worse since 2008 when I was writing the play. So a lot of research. And I think, you know, the difficult thing is to make that not boring for the audience, to make that exciting and engaging and, and not hard work. And I think that that was why the length of the plays was really important, if you like, so that we crept up to the audience. We didn't just bang them over the head with this stuff. We let them sort of get get close to the characters first, get into the story. And then see it as a series of character conflicts rather than dry debates. So yeah, I, had I think they can do that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't want to interrupt. I can leave my, my no, question. No, please do. Um, yeah, because I had a question about that. It was, is it especially challenging to, to write a play focused on environmental scientific matters because you have to find a balance between a flowing narrative with injecting it with environmentally conscious and scientific material is this a, a very difficult challenge you feel for dramatists i think i think it i think it probably is because i think the evidence is that there isn't a great deal of work that's quite nailed that um, you know obviously there was a lot of a sense that it would be worthy it would be boring it would be you know back you know breast beating you know um i mean one of the reasons what that uh i mean I, I i going back to your original question about am i a political dramatist i think one way in which i am an atypical political dramatist is i'm really interested in comedy i'm really interested in humor and i think my view of the world is quite an ironic one i'm interested in you know i i enjoy laughter uh satire and so on um and obviously that's not a, a contradiction with politics um and indeed, some of the greatest political writers from Aristophanes to Brecht, you know, would stress the centrality of fun <laughs> in theatre. Theatre is the department of the leisure industry. Um, it is about entertainment. And Brecht said the theatre that can't be laughed with should be laughed at. So I think pleasure is always your primary duty. And I, and I suppose that one of the reasons that I love environmental questions is they're about sensuous matters, right? They're about birds they're about plants they're about things that i love uh, the sea sea marsh fen you know these things are the things that i think about the most really so that you know i think it's something should be written out of love rather than to to sort of preach or to teach those things come out of that impulse if you like rather than being that's the primary impulse um so i think those are the challenges and one of the things we as a teacher i'm always talking about with students is this this great question in drama of exposition which is always things that you know people get quite caught up with you know you don't want to tell the audience what to think and also you don't want to spend all your time giving them information they need to sort of work it out for themselves so you need to leave room for the audience's imagination but at the same time with an issue like climate change you, you obviously have a responsibility to the truth and you've got to find a way of dramatizing the truth and I suppose the way I found was to make everybody disagree with each other. You know, it wasn't a play about climate denial, by the way. That was quite interesting because at that point, let's face it, there was an awful lot of that going on in 2009 around the Copenhagen conference and so on. But my characters all kind of agreed. It's just they disagreed about how to proceed. And I think that enabled a slightly subtler debate and it enabled them sort of throw facts and figures and, you know, in the heat of the moment at each other in a way that was sometimes funny, sometimes moving but rarely only a fact you know and I think if a fact is on its play in a play without an emotional or subtextual reason to be there it probably needs to be cut out so it's it's through drafting it's redrafting it's 
working with the actors. You know, I think the wonderful thing about theatre is really collaborative. So you can sort of see if an actor's zoning out, <laughs> you know, that the audience will probably zone out. Um, and, you know, again, the lovely canvas of two plays meant that I didn't have to put all the pressure up front in the plays. We could lower the audience into the excitement of knowing stuff. There was a great moment when it was on at the bush where Jeffrey Stratford, who played Will, you know, was sort of talking away and he, I think he had a laptop with him. And of course, as I say, it's a very small space. And an audience member got up in the middle of the show to look over his shoulder at what was in the laptop. Uh, or in the interval, people came up and inspected things on the set and they believed so hard that what was being said was true, which was ironic, you know, because even though there was a lot of truth in the play, a lot of it was made up, you know. I mean, of course, it's an invention, it's a fabrication. And I found that really extraordinary and moving. You know, people thought I was a scientist, which was so comical. You know, this is a person with, you know, a C at physics. So, you know, theatre's about absorbing and immersing people until they believe that what they're hearing is true. Doesn't mean that lets you off the hook from telling the truth, but, you know, it's still a fiction. Were there any key aspects about humans you sought to portray throughout these plays and, and the way we approach handling the climate crisis? Because you, you mentioned how within within the plays the characters disagreed on how to proceed and of course this is something we we see a lot um even amongst very environmentally conscious individuals and i was wondering when you were writing this play were there any key aspects about humanity you sought to portray through these characters yeah good question because in some respects that's what the play is about it's about psychology humanity you know why can't you know if your house is on fire you know you don't have a big debate about <laughs> Are we going to call the fire engine? Are we going to put the fire out? You get out and you put the fire out. The wonderful Swedish writer Andreas Malm has written a great book called Coronavirus, Climate Chaos um, and Chronic Emergency. I recommend it to anybody. It's a brilliant read. Uh, and he spends the first beginning of the book saying everything they said we couldn't do because of climate change happened within weeks when coronavirus hit. You know, shutting down the economy, locking down the economy, people staying in their houses you know, carbon emissions crashing, you know, this has been the sort of thing for 20, 30 years. Conventional wisdom says, you know, you can't ask the public to do this. You can't expect them to ration their carbon. You know, yes, they yes, we can. We just need to believe in it. And it needs to be driven from the top, actually. Uh, and I think we've spent, we've wasted decades sort of outsourcing the problem to you, me and everybody else, you know, in terms of our shopping choices and our gardening choices and our flying choices and so on, and pretending that the state had no part to play in it. So firstly, I think we have inherited a disastrous politics for this era, which just cannot acknowledge how grave the issue is and how deep the changes need to be. And I think that's one of the things that the play is about. But yeah, scratch it again. And I think there's something which I share with the play. I think we all do with this issue is that we understand climate change, but do we, do we really feel its gravity? Can we, you know, because changing ourselves, and it's different for you, Toby, I sense you're, you're younger than me, um, but I've been on this planet long enough to know how once you become entrenched in certain behavioural patterns, change feels impossible. And we're in a world where we have a very aged population of people who, the older they get, the more intractable they become. And they've produced a politics that reflects that, politics that's, you know, terrified of deep change, and yet is you know, kind of heading towards catastrophe. So 
I found that did firstly that thing that really drives the play is a generational thing, understanding how it feels different to be in your thirties than your fifties, sixties, seventies. But I think, you know, it was Edward Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, the biologist, said, you know, we are, let's see if I can get this right. I can't remember the quote. It was something like, we, you know, we're dealing with, we have sort of the physiology of cavemen, the institutions of, of, of the middle, middle Ages, and we're trying to deal with a kind of space age problem. I think he was talking about extinction. I think that's so true. You know, we're carrying, you know, just completely ill-fit for purpose institutions, politics, everything to deal with a really urgent and present crisis. And also we're carrying the wrong kind of psychology and physiology that human beings, you know, are very reluctant to change their ways. And this was epitomised actually in the story of Robin and Jenny, actually the second act of On the Beach, which is probably the piece of writing I'm most proud of, as you see them on the night of the storm, willfully refusing to do what they need to do to save their lives. And it's a kind of, you know, whilst I don't want to give any quarter to denialism, denialism comes from a place doesn't it it comes from a fear of change and a fear of what you might need to do to make that change so i guess the play was was exploring all of those complexities and and the ways in which you know our vanity our professional pride might kind of trump you know our capacity to do the right thing and i think that bedevils green politics like anything else you know, the complexities of humanity so i was also wondering what the what was the audience like for these plays were there what were the demographics? Was there anything that surprised you about the audience and the reactions to it? And did you meet anyone that was inspired by the play and maybe changed their ways or inspired them to act on a level that they were not previously? That's a really good question. I mean, I didn't track the demographics that closely, but I mean, I think it's worth saying that when we were doing, you know, in theatre, you tend to do these previews where you run the show slightly cheaper cost because you're trying to try it out in front of audiences and I was really nervous because I, I didn't feel people were coming I mean you know in a small theatre a, a half full small theatre is a, is a truly dreadful thing to witness um, after and, and the most crucial day you know uh, sad to say was the press night because what was exciting about that was um, you know we ran both shows back to back so the press had to stay for the entire day uh, all these kind of, you know, to be honest, right wing critics from the Telegraph, you know, the Mail, all these kind of dreadful newspapers. And I really and, I, and you know, it got amazing reviews and thereafter it sold out. And that was an incredible thing to witness. But uh, I, I read the reviews very closely, not because I wanted to hear their advice necessarily, but I was just really interested to see how they described what they'd seen. And, you know, I recommend people to look back at the Telegraph review, particularly by this guy, Charles Spencer, who, you know, was a strange writer, sometimes extremely right-wing, sometimes very open-minded. And it, it starts like the whole, it was a quite a long review, actually begins him saying, you know, climate change, is it happening? I mean, li literally people were saying that, 2009, is it happening? Do we need to worry about it? Isn't it a bit scary? He just spends a lot of time talking about his anxiety. And then he says this was a theatrical knockout and starts talking about how the play really, you know, for him sort of um, delivered. And, you know, I thought that was very, very inspiring, actually, because he, you know, there was a classic case of somebody, whether they were playing this up for their readership, I don't know, who did not agree with that play, but could not resist that play. And I felt like that's what I wanted to achieve with the play, that, you know, climate change is too big an issue to divide us, really, isn't it? And yet it does. Um, so the arts must find a platform, a way of telling a story which reaches people in, in a way that they can't quite resist. 
it's done right. And it was a brilliant production, by the way, beautifully directed by two directors, brilliant designer, Tom Scott, Mike Longhurst and Tamara Harvey, the two directors who who both run the theatres, Theatre Cluid and uh, Domar, who wanted to restage it 10 years later. Fantastic cast. So it was one of those rare moments where everything felt right. And I think to answer your question more precisely, what tells me that it changed people was that it's people are still talking about it, right? You know, new plays. I mean, 3,000 people saw that play. Then it adapted for Radio 3 and probably many, many more people heard it. I spent years trying to adapt it into a film which never got made, sadly, for all sorts of reasons. But I spend my life talking about the contingency plan. So it's, you know, its reputation is much larger than anybody who actually saw it. And I mean, thank God plays get published because it's still available for people but that's why the revival felt quite important, actually, to sort of, you know, almost consolidate and reach many new audiences and, and much younger audience as well. Um, the, the audience of the Bush was was a, was a variety of people, but because it's a small boutique kind of theatre, you know, inevitably, it's the people who know about theatre that go rather than, you know, people who don't. So that, that was always a disappointment, I suppose. I also wanted to talk a, a bit about your, I read that, you also have a play, A Vulnerable Place, that you created in 2014, which documented your journey from the Norfolk boards to the, the steeps of Mongolia. I wanted to just hear a bit more about this play, because obviously it's not it's not a play I've seen and I haven't I haven't read it. And I would like to to hear, hear about it. And why did you decide to write a play about it and return to these these themes of climate change? Well, I mean, because I felt I mean, it's quite an interesting thing as a writer. You can't I can't sell <laughs> put it bluntly one play after another about climate change um it, it it's just you know the audience wants you to keep surprising them taking the new directions theaters too but you know uh, back in 2014 i felt gosh you know six years have passed since i wrote these plays what have i done you know what am i doing how is my art serving this stalled question and actually but you know weirdly until xr i would argue that climate change and Greta Thunberg, climate change have gone very quiet in public discourse. Um, so we kind of forget that, the, you know, whatever you think about those individuals and Extinction Rebellion and so on, they changed up the debate very, very rapidly from the senescence it was in, and they, they are to be thanked for that. But so I felt I wanted to kind of, you know, go back, think about it, see how the world had changed. So In a Vulnerable Place was a story as much as a play, and I performed it. So I sort of, it was a non-fiction piece where I kind of just tried to talk to a lot of people in two very specific places, the Norfolk Broads, because I was now working at University of East Anglia and I, you know, that's situated in Norwich, obviously on the edge of the Broads. And I got to know various people working in conservation in the region. And the region, it's at danger again from sea level rise, uh, particularly because it's a freshwater environment that was threatened by saltwater. Um, and by the way, I'm involved in another project about that now, but we should find some time to talk about at the end of the session uh, called Song of the Reeds. But um, I so I went around talking to people um, and I discovered yet more stalemate. Um, you know, here was an, a region that was in incredible trouble environmentally and yet no one was talking to each other. People of like mind were at each other's throats. And meanwhile, the clock was ticking. And then weirdly, and you're, you're kind of wondering, well, why did he go to Mongolia? Um, it was partially because I'd been involved in a, in a research project in Cambridge. They'd invited me on as a kind of monitor because of the contingency plan, weirdly. Uh, it was about a bunch of anthropologists and they were doing comparative work between how people were experiencing climate change in 
all over the world, Alaska, Mongolia, and the UK, obviously, and I can't remember where else. Um, and I was just, my mind was blown by this idea. And I'd never been to East Asia, I'd never been to Mongolia. And I, I started talking to these anthropologists. And what became interesting was how Mongolia was was right at the forefront of climate change. So, you know, we think of the Arctic polar regions as being where it's most happening most quickly. And that's true, obviously, that they're kind of almost changing so quickly, science can't keep up. But Mongolia, you know, which is an extraordinary place, such a wonderful moving environment, you know, is drying up at the most extraordinary rate. There is this very high plateau full of, you know, still very much given over to nomadic culture with a fat, you know, really rich biosphere. And I, I want to make my focus nature in this project, I suppose, and how nature was faring and extinction crisis. Because also one of the key um, prompts was the so-called state of the nature, state of nature reports that were published by all the major wildlife charities in the UK in 2013, which said that two thirds of our species were dying out, well, were declining, sorry, and a third were dying, declining strongly, as they put it. So I wanted to see how was climate change part of that. Uh, so yeah, I went on this journey. I talked to a lot of people. I came back and I told the story. So you know, I, I I had to perform it myself, and I wanted to sort of take that challenge up because I've never really been a performer before. And I performed it all over the place, a bit like Claire's Walk in conferences, events, wherever people wanted to invite me. I did it. I did it in theatres, did it in the bush, <laughs> um, almost as a sort of way of, if you like, you know, tailing off that previous experience. And it is published, actually. It, you can get a sort of ebook of it. It's already a historical document. You know, this is the thing, isn't it? 2014. The world has changed since 2014. But that was, you know, what was useful about it was I wanted to meet people who were trying to make a difference. Um, and I met people who were trying to deal with coastal collapse in the UK. I met an extraordinary man in a prison in the middle of Mongolia who tried to deal with a river drying up. So it was a it was an act of advocacy, I suppose, and an intervention. And perhaps it was the most political thing I've ever done, actually, Toby, you know, because in a way I was just telling people about real things that were happening uh, as eloquently as I could. But, you know, if I'm honest, it didn't reach people in the way that Contingency Plan did. It couldn't really because AI was acting <laughs> and I'm not <laughs> as good as those actors. But also because because it had to be me performing it. It was such a slow process reaching people, you know, you you know, and I couldn't give all the time to it that I would have wanted to so and I was producing it too so it was quite a demanding experience but well well worth it and I felt it provokes a really interesting debate so I would always be there every evening to talk to the audience afterwards and and particularly in places like Norfolk where it was set it did provoke some really interesting conversations I think. Yeah it sounds like a, it's a difficult challenge to do everything by yourself. It really is. And I was I was wondering was there any site you saw um, during this journey and adventure to Mongolia and across Norfolk that stuck out to you or surprised you? Was there any particular images that crop up into your head that what you, you first think of when you think about this adventure? And Yeah, that's a lovely question. I mean, I think that what was, I'm not a religious person at all, but I think what really moved me was the animism, the traces of animism in Mongolia. Um, I mean, I heard the wonderful Indian writer Amitav Ghosh talking about this the other day, his book, gosh, what is it called? Uh, it'll come to me. Um, but he he kind of, one of the things he's trying to kind of, The Great Derangement is his book, Amitav Ghosh. And in that book, he explores the way in which storytelling in the West is Ill, Ill fit for purpose to try and deal with 
the extremity of the climate crisis. And yet there are traditions of storytelling and indeed culture, particularly in Asia, but other parts of the world, uh, in, in the Americas, obviously before colonialism, where nature's force was just built in. And the, and the, in a way, religious practices reflected that. And I'm, I'm sort of going on about this because in what the people I met quite a lot in Mongolia, I met shamans, <laughs> um, which was quite an amazing thing. You know, we, we sort of, prayed um i met buddhist monks and you know the sort of culture of protecting the surface of the land in the face of appalling environmental devastation i mean you know china's and the west mining operations in mongolia are just disgraceful in the middle of this sacred landscape that really really shocked me and to to be to go and see the glaciers melting in real time and and yet also this very rich uh natural world to see the lama gaia this amazing sort of vulture or the sort of bar-tailed goose, goose, sorry, and then to see the commonality of species like the Eurasian skylark and the English skylark, uh, I found that so inspiring, actually. And, And I mean, as I say, it leads to some of the work I'm trying to do now, where I'm trying to go directly into questions of nature per se, you know, the questions of the natural world, because Clearly, that that's the ecological crisis is now about species. I think as much as human survival. I wanted to. I've got like a series of more more general questions that I I wanted to ask you, and I wanted to ask, what do you think are the the main obstacles to environmental progress on a global scale that we currently face, and then we have to maybe get over, maybe on a, a level of maybe we need to stop being humans and just <laughs> <laughs> evolve as a species, maybe. But what is what are the some some of the hurdles you feel that we need to get around? I think that, that there are certain things which obviously just have to be really committed to, and, and clearly getting to getting to zero, not by twenty fifty, but by 2035 let's say you know the acceleration of that process um you know just war on carbon per se uh is crucial and that i mean that's clearly starting to pick up some kind of pace but really not fast enough by any means and that takes governance strong governance everywhere so the major hurdle i think is governments actually we've had appalling politics for the last few years obviously populism um and i think that's a fight back I mean, I know that's a fight back against the the truth. You know, Bolsonaro, Scott Morrison, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, actually, uh, Viktor Orban, Vladimir Putin. You know, we have the worst leaders we could possibly hope for right now. Um, so we have to fight those that politics very, very head on. But because we do need the state and we need all those states and we need international compliance with China, obviously, to uh, striving this. So we need to find a way of making that stick and getting a citizenship that global that is on it, if you like, who's, who's monitoring the, the sort of movement towards zero carbon. We also need a completely different model of development. Uh, I'm reading a wonderful book at the moment called Irreplaceable by a writer called Julian Hoffman, and it links to the work I'm doing at the moment. I'm working with nature reserves and conservationists to try and sort of um, you know, work out if we've got the right model of conservation um, in this country to deal with the crisis of, that we're, we're actually experiencing of losses of species by the day. And, you know, we've got some brilliant conservation organisations in this country. We've got some wonderful enlightened farmers, but, you know, our general trajectory is towards destruction. So, you know, how do we mobilise the public to care as much about 
a tiny snail in Norfolk, like the little ramsel whirlpool snail or the swallowtail butterfly or whatever it is, as they do about, you know, broadband um, or, you know, much more urgent questions. Now, again, the pandemic has been our friend in this respect. Clearly, you know, we spent the whole year forced to stay local, looking more closely at the world around us, becoming more alert to uh, its changes and its detail. And my hope is that we can build on that. Um, but we we have to be very suspicious of what looks like the right kind of decision making by governments. We've got to take them at their word, but also question their word. Uh, because we're, you know, you know, as I mentioned already, that there's this kind of whole culture of build back better, that better and leveling up and, you know, red wall constituencies and Rishi Sunak is throwing money around left, right and centre for infrastructure upgrades. Well, it's exactly that kind of stuff which is driving nature to the edge. And it's happening in the south of England. It's happening in East Anglia. It's not just, but it's also happening even more profoundly in parts of the world we know less about. Obviously, the rainforest, uh, the coral systems, um, you know, we're places where democracy is much less well established and the law is much less well established. So I think it's somehow kind of putting nature first as our politics, finding a politics that can do that and putting us in nature. So it's a real reversal of values. But I feel cautiously optimistic about that because I can I can hear nothing else from people at the moment. Everyone seems to be talking in that language because after all, the pandemic is nature taking a big bite out of us, frankly. So that's those are the obstacles, but they're also potentially the solutions too, interestingly. And what are the best ways you feel that the arts can engage people into committing time, energy and resources required to create a sustainable future? Or maybe another way to put that would be what makes great environmentally focused artwork or creative work? How can creative work with an environmental theme engage people? How can creative practitioners engage people through environmentally themed work? What what do you think works? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really difficult question. Um, I think that one thing that really is important is knowing your shit (laughs) Um, and respecting the fact that people know loads. And, you know, I think being as particular as possible is crucial. And again, keep bringing up this current project I'm doing. So what I'm doing is I'm working with two nature reserves in East Anglia, Wiccan Fen and Strumpshaw Fen in Norfolk, and Wiccan Fens in Cambridgeshire. They're both Fenland, obviously, as the title suggests. And I'm spending, I'm lucky enough, I'm, it's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. I'm, I've been taken out of my post at UEA and I'm basically spending a lot of time walking where I can with people in their managed environments and trying to get to know, you know, the optimum ways of managing land for nature and trying to tell stories about that. And it's really not easy, but one way I'm doing it, I'm, I'm creating several projects, one of which is a theatre piece. And here I'm collaborating with an outdoor theatre company called uh, Tangled Feet. And that's a really exciting process because I'm not generally a person that's done outdoor theatre. Um, and I know that you can't tell a story in the same way in the great outdoors. Of course, right now, it's the most perfect form of theatre and it's the only safe form of theatre available. And again, it's working with them in the environments we're going to work with, with the people who manage those environments, recognising that we'll often have audiences who will know as much as we do about these places, if not more. And learning from those people too. So I think getting really close to what you're writing about is really important. And designing theatre or art that speaks to place and the specifics of place uh, and, and sort of 
com, com, capitalizes on those things rather than sort of designed for everybody every every time. I mean, one of the things that really bugs me is the ascendancy of long form television at the moment. There's a lot of great stuff out there. I recognize that. But, you know, people are going to Netflix like they're going to their dealer. And you know what troubles me about that is Netflix is not connected to place at all. Uh, it, its technology is obviously disembodied. Its production model is totally agnostic. It's what they call place agnostic. You know, you won't find anything out about contemporary Britain from from Netflix. Whereas, you know, BBC drama in the 70s, you would have found out a lot about contemporary Britain. And you still can from some BBC dramas. And everybody trashes those and goes to Netflix. And I do too, by the way. I watch Netflix too. I'm the biggest hypocrite of all. So, you know, how do we make those immensely popular, uh, really easy to access sort of forms of storytelling address the climate crisis you know because you, you struggle to think of any examples of work which does that in that form format whereas actually in film there are increasingly more and more great films you know seen unfortunately by fewer and fewer people that touch upon that um, and i think films always had a great uh, capacity to speak about landscape so i'm trying what to are find some it... of these films yeah good question well i'm very interested in the films of they're quite obscure films, but people like Deborah um, Granick, and uh, she makes films like Leave No Trace, wonderful film that was came out in 2017, set in the Pacific Northwest forests. It's all about, it's a very moving film. Um, you know, it's about PTSD, actually. It's about a, a kind of father and daughter living out in the woods because he's obviously traumatised by war. But in its own way, it's about place and space and forest and freedom and ecology. And she made a similarly good film, with, which was the first film for Jennifer Lawrence, actually, Winter's Bone, 10 years ago, 10 years before that, in the, I think it's set in the Ozarks. So, yeah, I mean, actually, of course, you could argue something like Breaking Bad um, has an incredible sense of tracking, mapping space in the sort of borderlands of America. So, you know, there are great models. Often in, in American culture has always been very alert to landscape in a way that perhaps English sort of cinema hasn't been. So, yeah, I think there are, you know, certainly wouldn't pretend for a second I'm not the only person doing this stuff. And obviously the visual arts um, have often been ahead of the game in this, whereas Joseph Boys onwards. So um, I think, you know, Boys is a good example of meaning, acting upon what you're saying as well. So not just telling people stuff, but actually embodying it in the work. And I think theatre, there was a great spate of work in theatre to try and get to zero carbon and to make theatre sustainable and i think that is an ongoing pressure because there are a lot of ways in which theatre does soak up a lot of carbon generate a lot of emissions you know look at the lights for god's sake you know it's very difficult i mean katie mitchell is a great director for the theatre who's been very alert to climate change you know has addressed that you know so she did the production of duncan mcmillan's play lungs on exercise bikes where the actors actually literally generated their own power during the show so Yes, practicing what you preach, um, making sure you're not contributing to the problem with the work. Another form I use a lot, which is, I think, underestimated, is radio. And radio really, and audio dramas and podcasts, which again are very available for us right now. So I'm doing four dramas set in a nature reserve for Radio 4 called Song of the Reed, which will go out from June on the solstices. And they will be, I'm going to be really interested to see how they go you know, because the idea is to create a kind of comic but touching story about everyday conservationists. If the archers can <laughs> last for sort of 70 years, I don't see why this story can't run and run. 
So, yeah, I think getting really specific, getting close to what you're talking about and practicing what you preach are would be my three great top tips. And you mentioned some films and artists and practitioners already that perhaps had a significant impact on your maybe approach to work or have been influences to you. Are there any more people or creatives or artists that have had a significant impact on the way you approach your environmentally focused work? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's things about the craft, aren't there? So there are playwrights that, I mean, Shakespeare <laughs> is is a great inspiration. And, and in a way that's quite surprising, because if you take a play like Midsummer Night's Dream, it's, a, it's the funniest play ever written, but it is the, probably the play that is most saturated in the natural world in the English language. And if you look at it that way, it's quite a different experience, if you like, from a frivolous comedy, although there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I, I love Chekhov. Chekhov I go back to a lot because Chekhov, in plays like The Cherry Orchard and Confania, was really ahead of the game in terms of ecological thinking and also wrote brilliantly about human beings. And if there are contemporary writers who do that, I think of someone like Annie Baker, who's an American playwright, who's incredibly sensitive to space and people and behaviour. So I find her work a great inspiration. And I say I love films, so, um, and I, you know, might mention great work, filmmakers like Werner Herzog, who's been, in a way, a great ecological artist since the 1970s. Uh, Terence Malick, in his early work, was very similarly, you know, a very alert to the drama of the natural world. Um, I love poetry. I mean, I read a lot of poetry. John Clare, obviously, I mentioned earlier on. I'm currently reading a wonderful American writer called Louise Gluck. Um, and I think that poetry has always contended with these questions. You know, it's always been, particularly lyric poetry, Wordsworth onwards has been about how do we live in this world? How do we attend to the non-human? Um, and I think that's been a constant and necessary inspiration. Yeah, so, there, you know, I'm not alone in this by any means. You know, there's a lot of things you take courage from and, you know, you, you, you try and emulate in some way. And in terms of tackling environmental issues on a on a day-to-day basis, are there any practices you've incorporated to try and live as much of an eco-friendly life as possible? Very good question. Well, obviously, you know, until the pandemic, I was trying never to drive and, you know, I was cycling everywhere, getting buses and trains. Uh, that has come to a, that's been trickier recently. I've just, had, I'm going to have my vaccine on Thursday, so I hope to get back into those, you know, uh, ways of getting around, although of course I've barely travelled over last year anyway. I don't fly except for work. In Mongolia, of course, I had to fly to get there. Um, and so very rarely for work I will fly, otherwise I don't. I would only get the train. And I, I actually don't go abroad that much, frankly, you know, only to continental Europe, really. And in my practice, it's tricky. I mean, obviously, I'm on my Mac computer and seeking to kind of, you know, power down as much as possible but I write with ink pens I use notebooks I use pencils increasingly to take notes and so where I can I'm trying to kind of reduce my impact in these very small things about you know I use libraries a lot I try not to use Amazon ever for getting my books so you know these are relative trivialities aren't they but I think I you know I, I in my life I'm somebody who walks a lot I'm outside as much as I can be I'm fortunate to have a garden so whilst I'm no horticulturalist I do try and garden it as sustainably as possible and, and, I'm, and I'm a vegetarian I'm not a vegan I haven't gone that far but 
but I have been for decades, so I hope that makes up for my shortcomings in going the whole hog and getting rid of dairy. So, yeah, I mean, you know, funnily enough, when I did that sort of activism back in the noughties, bring it, and I've got two teenage kids now, and they're very much ahead of the game, ahead of me. We, we kind of did a sort of real audit of our lives at that time, you know, and we're sort of out of date now. Um, but we, you know, we attempted to sort of transform the way we lived in our houses and the food we ate and so on, where we sourced it. And, I, you know, we attempt to maintain that, but I'm definitely not exemplary in that fashion. But, you know, I try my best, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was speaking to a previous guest. She she said it'd be a good question or interesting question to ask. What are your guilty pleasures in terms of none of us are perfect when it comes to being we're not perfect eco warriors all of the time and there's there's some things that we indulge in from time to time and and so I wanted to ask is there anything that you indulge in sometimes that's not environmentally friendly that you can't sometimes not indulge in that you find it really tricky not to well I will mention the the weekly bath uh the weekly bath should definitely have stopped a very long time ago but yeah somehow you know, being in a bath is a very releasing thing for me. So, yeah, I do indulge in a bath. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, funny enough, listening to music is an interesting one because I don't stream, I don't Spotify. I I can't resist having a CD. I tend to kind of source them, you know, I try and get digipacks and I try and get them secondhand. And, but, yeah, I guess that is a that is a relatively wasteful way of listening to music. But I think it's something about, I'm I'm still quite materialist in that respect about, you know, I don't quite trust digital art in a straightforward fashion. And I like I like to have a book in my hands rather than an electronic book, which actually I don't think is uh, necessarily more environmentally detrimental, especially if it's second hand. Yeah. And I suppose I occasionally eat fish. So that's, you know, uh, we try and source it as sustainably as possible. But, you know, th- finding a way of getting all those different sort of omegas and proteins and stuff has meant that occasion you know that is in the diet still it's not it's not it's not a disaster i mean even streaming you know streaming films that that you know frankly doesn't bear too much looking at and i would love to get to the point where i could be cycling into a cinema again and and likewise cycling to a theater but you know clearly right now we've been trapped into slightly retrograde ways of consuming our culture so yeah i think there are a few that's all i'm prepared to tell you about toby the list is probably (laughs) a lot longer but um yeah (laughs) um and also you've mentioned some some really good books and resources and poems and and films but are there any if you had to pick a a few books or a few films that you'd recommend people watch in terms of you know learning about the environment or that can be useful in helping creative practitioners communicate on a environmental level are there any that you'd recommend that's a really good question well i would say that i mean i was very inspired by the kind of wave of what became known as new nature writing so writers like mark cocker i like enormously in his book our place the fight for britain's wildlife has been a big influence on me it's it's a really great angry pithy eloquent book and him and his sort of peer writer tim d and Kathleen Jamie, those three writers have done something to British prose, English prose, which is quite amazing, I think, and, and sort of really educated me in, into sort of being able to be more precise and more persuasive in this kind of work. So I'd, I'd very much recommend their work, Tim D's recent book, Greenery, Kathleen Jamie's books, uh, her poetry, but also uh, books like Findings, 
um, and Richard may be going further back. So I love that tradition of writing. And, it, and it's also kind of, it's interesting because it's not quite my parish, if you see what I mean. So I, I find it inspiring because it's, it's, I can read it for pleasure. In terms of sort of books about helping being environmental artist, I can't think of too many. I think it is more about, I mean, I mentioned Amitav Ghosh, The Great Derangement. I think that is probably one of the most important contemporary uh, set of reflections about storytelling, climate change. And similarly, books like Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction, really important book, I think. It's already six, seven years old. But uh, David Quammen's another writer that I find really important. He wrote an amazingly prescient book called Spillover, which was all about pandemics back in 2012. I mean, you know, everybody, every politician should be forced to read that book. Um, and I mentioned Andreas Mom, who draws upon that a little bit for his recent book. Yeah, those guys. Um, and I think I think I probably told you about the films and plays. But if I had to pick one, I would say something like Annie Baker's play, the, the Flick is an extraordinary play. It's actually about the cinema in, the, in America, but it's sort of, it's so profound in its way of trying to sort of place us in the predicament of the characters. And it's so subtle. And yeah, I'd love to be able to write quite like that. I've learned a lot from her writing, even though she's come quite late into my writing life because I only really experienced her play since 2015. I think that's probably enough to be going on with, isn't it? <laughs> that's a good, um, a good list of resources, definitely. Good, good. And Oh, what oh one last thing, one last thing, sorry. Bryony Wall, Kim, uh, Wall Kimmerer, amazing American woman um, who's of Native American heritage, is an extraordinary scientist whose works really inspired me. Her book, Gathering, Gathering Moss and Braiding Sweetgrass, both extraordinary books. Yeah, sorry, last one. And um, what advice would you give to a playwright who wanted to write a play centering around the, the theme of climate change or environmental issues? I think I'd go back to, I'd say, I go back to get specific. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to write realism, by the way. It could be quite poetic. It could be really quite indirect in approach. But I think people get under people's guards. And the way to do that is either through humour or metaphor or or just the richness of your characters. Um, I also think it is a world, which I'm discovering with the work I'm doing now, which is full of characters, you know, really great people. What keeps me hopeful, and that's my question for your next person, by the way, how do you stay hopeful? Um, what keeps me hopeful is the people I meet and the work that they're doing. Um, it really humbles me, actually. So I would say to anybody writing this issue, don't go in for the darkness. You know, I think right now we're, we're trying to help each other through this time. So it's not a time to kind of bang people over the head and and sort of frighten them, it seems to me, anymore. And, and, and it's much more nuanced now, I think, what we're trying to do. And we've covered so much in this interview, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, by likewise, the way, Toby. And before we end the interview, I just wanted to ask if there was anything you feel I've missed, anything you wanted to, to touch upon before we... No, I don't think so. I, th I think it's been a lovely conversation, and thank you for your questions. And I think, yeah, I just want to flag up to listeners... Song of the Reeds, this new project I'm doing, you know, look out for for the radio broadcast, which start this June on Radio 4. I'm going to try and hold some public events around it, probably in the autumn and spring next year. Let's keep an eye out for that. And and indeed, if you happen to be in Cambridgeshire or Norfolk in September, come and see Murmurations, which will be the outdoor theatre piece we'll be creating. So, yeah, that's a little plug. <laughs> OK, perfect. Well, thanks once again. It's been, yeah, been great. My pleasure. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Canvas. In two weeks, we'll be back with the next episode. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.